Welcome to Data Stories with Isabel Becker, the podcast that explores the relationship between data and narrative storytelling, to understand how data can spark the imaginations in us all, and how we can all learn the language of data stories. Andy Cockgreave is co-author of The Big Book of Dashboards and technical evangelist at Tableau. He's the host of If Data Could Talk and Chart Chat, both video series about data culture and data visualization. And he writes the Sweet Spot newsletter, curated stories of how data intersects with the world. He's also on the 2022 Data IQ Top 100 Most Influential People in Data. With over 15 years of experience in the industry, he's inspired thousands of people with technical advice and ideas on how to identify trends in visual analytics and develop their own data discovery skills. When I was 16, Andy writes, I wanted to specialise in English, maths and art, but I was told it was a terrible choice because it was too diverse. It took me 30 years to realise the error of that advice. Thank you so much for joining me on the Data Stories podcast. I have to say that um, intro of the um, radio made me feel like I'm kind of <laughs> on a radio station, like in BBC, like on a really, really legitimate podcast. So that's it's fun. always good to pretend to play the professional. And you know what? We all are professionals. <laughs> even pretend anyway. Nice to yes, be here. Thank you for being here. My pleasure. Um, so, yeah, I am really, really excited to have you on the Data Stories podcast because I understand that our interests are fairly aligned and I kind of want to dive into that with you Mm -hmm. um as I was just saying a moment earlier um I'm kind of really interested in the kind of intersection between storytelling and narrative and the kind of wonders that happen in things like books and films and what they do to your imagination um, and the world of data and the data industry um, and kind of data visualizations are um, an interesting point between those two ends of the spectrum. Um, and as chief evangelist of Tableau and also a pretty um, big enthusiast, um, I'm really excited to have you here. So, so yes. yeah, well, it's my pleasure to be here. Um... I mean, I think before we started, you saying you have a background in English literature. Is that right? I do. Yes. Yeah. I uh, absolutely loved it. Yeah. And I think uh, like many people in this industry, it's remarkable how few have a scientific background. Now, the downside of that is maybe some of us, maybe there's a little less statistical rigor that we have to be wary about, but the ability to take the skills one learns in arts and liberal arts into this field is uh really really important in my Mm. opinion as well as yours i guess yes and what was your background uh well i mean super i i left school going to go on an art foundation course i was going to go and draw comics for my career uh bailed out of that with a week to go to go and do a geography degree look at glaciers Eventually did computer science and wrote primary school software, then some hardcore financial services software. Along that path, discovered usability and uh, design in there. Then bummed around on a bike for a while. Then did business research. Don't worry, this is going to end. This story is going to end. <laughs> then did business research at a company where I st- my 
boss was so demanding. I was like, God, I just don't want to give him all this information. I'm going to throw charts on an Excel spreadsheet as a summary. I didn't know they were called dashboards, but that's what I was building. Uh, building him dashboards, then joined University of Oxford as a data analyst, uh, and then joined Tableau in 2011 uh, as to, to do marketing, pre-sales, and all sorts of things. Uh, along the way, did some hotel cycle guiding as well, and did a lot of journalism on the side. Right, so what's my background? Artist, computer scientist, engineer, programmer, uh, interviewer, researcher, project manager. Basically, without really having complete career planning, I actually did all the skills, that, well, a, a lot of the skills that are great to have if you want to be a fully rounded data analyst. Um, so that enabled me to be in the position I'm at, at Tableau, leading to sort of writing books such as the Big Book of Dashboards. And yeah, this is, this is I think, the importance of the theme of this episode is going to be the technical skills you need have are vital but i'm pausing because i'm going to say the word and then immediately say i hate the word uh, the soft skills you need of communication and uh, communication empathy thinking and interpretation are also vital and for the record never use the word soft skills to describe it <laughs> uh, as the others yeah so there you go that that's the cockgreave career history in i don't know a minute Lovely, thank you. Yeah. yeah, and that kind of that's it's, language is so important, and that's what you know. That's my kind of principal interest, and the descriptions of hard and soft skills. It does reflect that kind of hierarchical thinking of what skills are more mm. important and what aren't. Yeah, and absolutely. I like and, that you picked up on that. Yeah, and I think it, it's swung too far in the past uh, fifteen twenty years in terms of education. STEM subjects vital, right? There is no arguing that STEM subjects are incredibly important. But when you take the A out the art out of stem out of at the curriculum it's like well oh we're, we're losing people who can empathize and think and communicate and actually they're just as vital uh, for a thriving society and economy yes and that leads me on actually well to um i want to talk to you about teaching kind of data skills um particularly in the area of data visualization so um, and kind of interpreting data from visualization. So first, can you give us a bit of a, just a summary of what is a data visualization for our listeners who may have no idea what that means? A data visualization. What is a data visualization? Okay, imagine you have a spreadsheet full of numbers. I don't know, selling sales of products over the last 13 to, or over the last 24 months, right? That's great. You can look up any individual information, sell and see the value of sales in that particular given time. Great. Can you look at that matrix of numbers and look at find the biggest selling number? Well, you can. It's going to take time. Can you look at it and compare trends of one product against another in a in a cell of numbers? No, you can't because cognitively we have a short-term memory of that can hold four or five things, possibly seven, but probably four or five things simultaneously. So as soon as you're looking across a cell of numbers, uh, a, a matrix of numbers, as soon as you've got to the fourth number, you've forgotten what the th first number was. Mm -hmm. So data visualization is a uh, way of aggregating, taking aggregates of the data, for in this example, sales of products over a bunch of time, and using, um, uh, using, so using well, I'll call them pre-attentive attributes, but I'll have to explain those, to 
show that aggregated information in a way that can be interpreted visually. Right. So now I need to delve into that a little bit more. All right. That's a long-winded thing to say. It's a line chart, a bar chart, a pie chart, a map, or a scatter plot. But what is actually going on in each of those? Think about a bar chart. A bar chart shows, well, you'll be able to see which things sold the most, right? And you will interpret which things sold the most by the length of the bar. The longer the bar, the more the sales, right? Now, length is something that we see pre-attentively. It's a pre-attentive attribute. So our cognitive system looks at this visual representation of information in bars. And before we even consciously actually read, look at it to think what we're looking at, our brain has already worked out which bar is longest, right? Uh, so bars use, bar charts use length. Line charts use angle and position uh, to uh, demonstrate this information. Sometimes you might see uh, different sizes of things. Size is a pre-attentive attribute. And the trick of data visualizations is to use the advantages of the cognitive system, pre-attentive attributes being a, the key example, to get information about the aggregated data into the brain as rapidly as possible and as effectively as possible for the purpose that the chart designer has determined is the right purpose. I bet you were just at, I hope, well, hopefully you weren't just thinking, I'd say, it's a bar chart. That's what no, a data no, no. visualization is. <laughs> no, no, no. That's exactly the type of explanation I want. And, um, you know, the kind of putting it into that type of everyday language is really helpful. Um, so you talk about those pre-attentive attributes and making use of um, the brain's ability to interpret kind of information visually and spatially. Um, I know that you're... You, you take inspiration from the world of design mm -hmm. and I'm really interested to kind of dig into that further. Um, what is it do you think about the developments of the design world and how that has kind of, um, you know, intersects with advertising and marketing, I guess, yep. or, or product design? What is it about that... Uh, area of knowledge about how to capture the human imagination that kind of drives you with your area of work in Tableau. I'm really interested. Well, I think in my line, one of the great things about the path I've gone in since being a data analyst and then joining Tableau was, first of all, I got fascinated by the cognitive science, right? How do we, how do we actually see the world around us? Um, that, that in itself is fascinating. That then led to a lot of the psychological uh, pushes and pulls that, uh, you know, I mean, the, the, I mean, the eye is not a camera, right? The brain is doing a bunch of stuff to um, interpret and maybe cheat what's being seen. That's fascinating. And then as you sort of get into that psychology, it, it, the next progression for me, at least, was naturally like, well, hang on, how do you hack that uh, in order to be effective? How, how do people hack that to lie or to cheat or to enhance uh, enhance those interpretations. And that led me to a book by Don Norman called The Design of Everyday Things, which I think was really the, for me, the book that was like, oh, hang on a minute. A lot of this has already been uh, worked out. You know, by that, by this time I was, I was working out, you, you could design charts and you could cheat charts to lead people down a certain path. 
you could design charts that nobody wanted to look at, um, or you could design charts that people were like, oh, that's really nice. I'm going to engage in this, right? And it's like, oh, hang on, what am I actually doing here? I, well, I'm intuiting what obviously turned out to be decades of research and application uh, in the world of design. So Don Norman's design of everyday things. If you think about any any object you have, and I'm looking around, uh, well, okay, okay. Think about remote controls, right? Uh, a remote control for a TV. Um, you can make things. You, nobody's going to look at a manual for a remote control. So, how does somebody pick up a, a remote control and know how to use this thing, right? It, what are the tricks that make it intuitive to use or easy to learn? And how much functionality do you put in a remote control? Um, you know, a gadget lover would be quite happy with a remote control with an array of 30 buttons on it, each one doing things and you can change, you know, I mean, change things that I don't even understand on how to use a TV. Or if you think about the Apple TV remote or more modern remotes, they kind of have two buttons on them. Uh, or even think, what remote control would you give to, uh, you know, you know, uh, and, you know, my, my granddad, right? You know, he's probably less keen to learn new technology and maybe hard of sight's not so good you just give him a button with a channel control and a volume control what's going on there this is uh designers thinking about how flexible should something be how usable should something be uh the fewer buttons there are the more usable it is uh, it's easy for anybody to use but you can't do very much with it and it's principles like that you're like well hang on a minute when i'm building a dashboard or a chart i can make it really simple for somebody to understand Think about The Economist, a chart in The Economist. It's just a simple, simple bar chart. Anybody can read that. Or I could build some intricate, multiple-layered, interactive um, piece of art or interactive dashboard, which is really complicated to use, but requires a skilled individual to understand the principles. And then, you know, and then, and then, and then all these things just uh, get opened up. And so, so there's there's that aspect of design, which is really important, but also... As the aesthetics of design, you know, you mentioned advertising. And no matter how much we might want to rail against it, the way things look influence whether people are engaged in something with you. So Don Norman describes this as the visceral level of processing. Yeah. I look at something and I'm going to make a millisecond judgment about whether I like it or not. And if you're designing dashboards or uh, for your teams, or if you're designing charts for uh, publications to the board or for publications to the public, if it doesn't look good, you've already lost people. Um, so it was that kind of, those kind of learnings, you know, there are two examples from Don Norman's book that just made me realize that it's like, okay, I can build a scatter plot in Tableau, but that is the start of the journey of creating something that I can actually publish for others to use. Mm. And do you think that Tableau dashboards, you know, existing in the same uh, ecosystem, let's say, as, as kind of compelling advertisements or compelling designs needing to engage their audiences to capture their attention, um, kind of taking part in what people call the attention economy, I guess. Do you think that designers of dashboards need to be more in tune with 
the forms of things like social media and how that the design of those um those media kind of artifacts that grab our attention um i possibly not right i think that right so your question was specifically about dashboards uh in our book we design we defined a dashboard as a visual display of information uh with designed to uh facilitate understanding right it was only uh, it was something like that it was it was only 15 words it was a really vague definition with absolute intent because even what a dashboard is is quite vague however a dashboard is something you are uh, there are always going to be caveats to this but generally a dashboard is something you are creating for people who are already engaged in understanding something about a topic who will go to to find out more about that topic now mostly internally or in our organizations we're building dashboards to monitor internal processes and we're going to monitor sales is our marketing are our marketing campaigns working are is staff turnover within acceptable thresholds uh, etc right so in those search situations the audience is at least motivated to go and look at this thing because it's part of their business process to understand the impact of what they're doing. Does it affect the numbers? Uh, so in those cases, you don't really need to build something that's TikTok ready, right? Um, that said, but the but the, the beauty of this field is there's way more to data visualization than there are dashboards. You know, there is a spectrum from... Uh, does something need to be interactive or static? Does something need to be built to engage users who are not really paying attention, or is it be, are you building it for users who are already engaged? Right? You know, if I'm building a dashboard for my colleagues at Tableau, it's going to look a whole lot different than if I'm going to build a chart that I'm going to put on social media to try and get people to click onto a more detailed interactive chart or something else. Um, and so I think since you asked the question specifically around dashboards, generally dashboards have got to look good. They've got to be nicely designed and they've got to be usable. You probably don't need to use the social media tropes. But if, you, but if you're going to put a chart on social media, it better it, it can often help to have certain things that grab people's attention. And I, I, I cage my words a little bit there because, uh, uh, yeah, no, 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 I'll hold to those words. Yeah. <laughs> For say, social media, the challenge of social media is how do you stop people scrolling, scrolling. and stop on your thing? Now, yeah. okay, so, okay, the reason I'm caging my hedging my words is don't lie, right? You can be shiny, you can be, make, make things pop, just don't lie with your data. As we, um, Andrew and I were meeting, I was explaining my um, my background in English literature and how I'm motivated to do this podcast because I think that um, there's a real need 
as I've witnessed myself from working in the data industry to get all different types of people engaged in the topic of data, the data department, the data visualizations that are coming out of the data department, the whole kind of data kind of subculture, I guess, that exists within an organization um, and kind of create a, a common language that um, around data that all different types of people can understand. And I think that uh, where we can start with that is stories, because as humans, we all engage with stories. We organize information through narrative um, and we engage with with people and, and sound. There's an interesting um, conversation about the difference between a story in a data visualization and a narrative. Um so a story might be a kind of series of events, whereas a narrative, kind of authors of narratives are instructed to show, don't tell to their audiences. Mm-hmm. So they invite their audiences or their readers to experience the story for themselves so that they can have an experiential and emotional uh, connection to the story. And we're talking about cognition. That helps people to understand things better and remember things. So writers are told to um, show, don't tell Mm -hmm. to their audiences. But um, I've also seen that show, don't tell is also the title of a workshop held at the, I'm going to say this word wrong, the Malofige Summit, which is uh, one of the most important events in infographics or data visualization journalism. Um, so I want to ask you, how do you think that if we if say for, for the example of the data visualizations inside Tableau, for example, where you're not um, showing them to a mass audience, but people who already have um, an investment in visualizations and you're wanting to kind of really engage someone in something quite niche, I guess. How could a Tableau data visualization, if at all, kind of show, don't tell? Mm-hmm. a story how can it enable the audience to experience the story so i think the challenge here isabel is the the bi industry the business intelligence industry has always been great at jumping onto words and trends and then using those as uh, fantastic uh, hooks with which to sell their product and create trends and sell more software. Uh, I mean, even the term dashboard, what is a dashboard? A dashboard dashboard was originally a piece of leather or wood that was put at the foot of a stagecoach driver to stop water dashing onto their clothes, right? And then when they made cars, they then made cars look like stagecoaches, so they stuck the same bit of wood on the front, even though it was relevant, and then eventually somebody put a gauge on it and they call it a dashboard, right? So a dashboard, it's just it's just a word, yeah. which is why our book's definition is super vague because it's, it's a word taken from somewhere else put into this BI industry. 
The same thing has happened with stories and narratives, right? A static visualization, such as you get in The Economist, or you all we saw on a slide in COVID press conferences, in the government press conferences, they don't tell stories. They just largely just represent uh, a, a, a moment in time or a trend over time. Uh, data storytelling became rightly very trendy about, uh, I don't know, 10 years ago. And as, as there was this uh, a search for ways to do more than just show a, show a single chart, prior to the trend of data storytelling, largely it was like, okay, here's, here's a dashboard. You know, you, and you can lay out a dashboard like a comic strip with a narrative from left to right and a good grid. And that creates a flow of information, which if I was being a lazy marketer, I could say my dashboard tells a story because it takes you from an overview down to a view, right? And I could say data stories to which the literature people go, yeah, that's not really a story, is it? Um, is it even a narrative, right? Uh, and then uh, introducing things like story points, which reintroduced in tab Tableau allows you to build uh, almost a slide deck of interactive visualizations. Then we had the trends of scrolly telling, so long-form stories, you know, New York Times being particular pioneers of that, hugely trendy. We see that kind of thing in Ironviz. And then loads of different ways in which basically sequences of information could be revealed via scrolling or clicking or just, just in a myriad of different ways. But it's largely information would be revealed um in some sort of procedural way from, and you go from A to B. Yeah. Is that a story? Uh, is it a narrative? To be honest, Isabel, I don't know. I don't know. Right. And now how is that helpful to practitioners? If, if Andy, the expert is going, Oh, I don't know. I'm washing my hands of it. The point, what, what I try and get across to people is think, what are you trying, what are you trying to do? You know, what, why are you building this thing you're building? What is the goal? Um, do you want them to leave with uh, a particular opinion? Do you want them to take a particular action or have make a particular decision? And whatever vehicle it takes to get there, is it the appropriate vehicle, right? So I don't think, uh, no, they're, they're, right. very often we see, I see things that are told as data stories and I, I, I would think they get closer to what liter literacy people would, might say is a narrative. Um, but I don't get very hung up on it. It's like, what have you have you built the right tool to get to the right audience so that uh, that audience can get to the right decision in the amount of time that they are willing and able to put into making reaching that conclusion with you? Does that make sense? Yes, <laughs> yes, and it's more about. Um, the kind of immediacy of attention grabbing and yeah. the engagement of like design yeah. rather than kind of long form storytelling in things like music or. Yeah. Music. So a great example of this was uh, during the pandemic, um, ProPublica, who are a great data driven organization in the US, uh, were creating detailed analyses of the progression of pandemic through uh, each of the states in the US. What they built for the what they built for social media was this kind of it was like a unit chart of the US. So each 
each you know is imagine a, bu- a bunch of squares and each square vaguely represented the geographical location of that state and within each square there was a almost like a weather vane which went up if cases were down or up if cases were up and down if cases were down so as this animation played out you could see all the states going up and down at different speeds and and when there was real breakthrough breakouts you know everything was high and then it would go down brilliant for social media because it was just like wow that's a that's a wacky animation click through to click through to the article and you actually then got detailed um multi-level stories of each of the states right so uh so then you could dive into the story of the pandemic in each of the states and this was the classic this was a really good example of thinking okay we can build one thing to grab people in the moment and on the social media in this in this example that's interesting and then once they've shown the willing you think okay well they're probably more interested in diving a little bit deeper here's a second longer version of the story and you know and then perhaps you know you can build even more levels than that so it's about trying to find the best vehicle to tell to tell the purpose tell the point you're trying to tell and is that why you call it um data communication instead of data and you put the uh, our listeners won't be able to hear but you put the inverted commas up of data storytelling yeah um, i you know i've 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 renamed myself as more of a data communication expert because um i think data visualization I, I just feel like it's more than data visualization what i've come to realize in fact i'll tell you the reason why this i was i was sat in a a presentation by somebody very senior at Tableau. And this person was presenting at a user group, a topic we call Tableau on Tableau. And it was like, how we, how we use Tableau in Tableau. And they were showing a bunch of dashboards, which were all very good dashboards. But in that method, in that presentation style, it's like, they weren't telling us anything because we, we didn't know what they were referring to. Here was the thing on the screen. And they were saying, as you can see, X shows, this shows us this and that and the other. I was like, well, I can't see because there's so much information on that screen. I don't know what's happening. And then the same week, another person in Tableau was uh, doing a presentation about um, how we all need to do more sales. And they showed this chart. And as you can see, this chart shows that da 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 And it's like, nope, I can't. And I, and I actually took the chart from that slide and timed how long it took me to work out what that chart was showing. It took me two and a half minutes to work out the chart was the chart was actually showing what this person said it was showing, but it was only on the slide for twenty. So it was only on the screen for twenty seconds before they moved to the next slide. Right. So what's going on here? They were using data visualization to make a chart that visualized what that person was articulating was uh, actually happening. But because they were presenting it on a slide and only showing the slide for 15 seconds, it's like, well, you're not communicating the information. You've, you've visualized it, great, but you've not actually thought about how you're presenting this information. Uh, so those two events made me think a lot more deeply about how to present data because it's all very well designing visualizations either for a screen or for a presentation. But actually the way you present data on screen or in a presentation or in an email or in a report is so important. So it's like, yeah, you visualized it, but you've still got to communicate it. Uh, so, yeah, I've moved on to data communication as my passion. That's really interesting. And what would you say your major kind of learnings that you could pass on for that's that the data communication? Um, I think one, okay, two. Uh, well, one's, 
two things. One, one is almost actually a, just a presentation skill if you ever do presentations. Uh, and then another is actually about data storytelling. So I'll, I'll do the data one first. Um, and I, it's, it's this vague mantra. I'm still trying, but a, a chart should be understandable in under half the time it is on the screen, right? So if you're, put, if you're doing a presentation, say, uh, either on a Zoom or in a room or in a little video, um, you're going to show a chart, right? If you know that slide is only going to be visible on, if you're only going to talk about that slide for 10 seconds, your audience needs to know what that chart is showing almost instantly. Uh, because you're going to make a point, they're going to look, and they're going to, and you, they're going to know what you're talking about. Uh, it is fine to put a really complicated chart on the screen, right? And I have seen this done masterfully by many, many people. But it's only when people realise that a complicated chart has to be fully explained. Uh, some of your audience might have heard of Hans Rosling, Swedish physician, uh, who blew the world of sort of data presentation apart in 2006 with a TED talk, which was absolutely masterful. He showed this really complicated animated scatter plot with 180 marks, about seven different colors. Every mark was different size and it moved and there were lines. And it's like, you can never show that on a screen unless you spend two minutes explaining what the chart is showing. And then you animate it and then you narrate the animation. It was a master. It was an absolute masterpiece. Just incredible way to tell a story but it took time to explain the chart. So that's point one. It's like you can show complicated charts in any presentation, but you've got to bring your audience along because they've got no idea what they're looking at. Uh, the second uh, tip, anytime you're putting information on any screen in a presentation and in, in a, and this, this applies virtually as well as in live presentations, is uh, actually, well, uh, don't assume, right, hang on, I'm going to have to caveat this. Right, if you're doing a presentation in a room, you're largely thinking, oh, I've got a really big screen. So it doesn't really matter how big my charts are. Um, and, you know, if you're in a meeting room, you're probably on an 80-inch TV. If you're in a breakout room, you might have a two-meter or even a massive chart, massive screen. But if you think about how big is that screen from the perspective of the person at the back of the room, it's actually often smaller than a mobile phone if they hold it up in front of them looking at it. So a big screen is not a big screen. Um, this applies also to uh, when you're presenting virtually because sometimes people are watching your meeting on a mobile phone, tiny screen, or they've just got a small laptop, right? Or Google Meet makes the camera that makes the cameras so big that the screen share is actually really tiny. Uh, so just don't make any assumptions that people can actually read your slide. You've got to make everything big enough to read. Whew, there you go. That's two long-winded top tips. <laughs> I love that. Um, I'm going to be pedantic and um, <laughs> pick up on the fact that you did mention the word narrating yeah. the the data visualization, but I guess what you're saying is is that in the field of data communication, the narrative, which um, can be described as something that organizes events in time and where kind of a plot provides connections, like causal connections between points in a story, mm -hmm. that may not be something that's possible on the kind of 2D visualization 
but it may be in the person that is narrating it and actually speaking about the visualization to an audience. Yeah. What would you say to that? Uh, well, I, I think in terms of data communication, the communicator is a fundamental part of that process anyway. I think, uh, you know, obviously you can build uh, visualizations, data stories, uh, or the data presentations that animate without any human interaction and they can work extremely well but if you're bringing your personal your person to that self and you are part of it then uh yeah you know what you you have the ability through the tone of your voice through the pitch of your voice through the speed or the pauses to actually bring the story to life and you know what if you really want to use data to drive change in your organization and you really want to control how people interpret your data story perhaps the best way is to be the person telling the data story rather than to rely on the data telling it yourself, telling mm. you, telling it itself. Interesting. Be the narrator. Indeed. <laughs> Indeed. I like how you talk about the creative process in creating data visualizations um and the the squiggling yeah and making space for experimentation and starting over again and again and um and the the self-doubt and the turmoil and the kind of that that whole process which um is kind of necessary for humans to be able to create things that are original and engaging um and i've also seen you refer to the critical need of what's being called data ethnography um so the study of data from a cultural perspective so kind of questioning things like who made the data set and how was it put together um and when was it last updated and, and things like that um so these kind of skills from more kind of arts and liberal arts backgrounds as we mentioned earlier um being really important for taking data and the data visualizations that represent them um, further and have and having a kind of critical um, understanding them critically within the context of the world around us and not just kind of some um, abstract graphs that exist, you know, by themselves. Mm-hmm. I kind of I love that you write about that and I, I identify that with that because um that's my interest in data and that's how I that's my thought process for um working with data um kind of squiggling and starting again and getting frustrated and not working in, in a kind of linear fashion or being able to necessarily pick up the technical um capabilities as quickly as my peers might be able to um there are lots of data skills kind of boot camps around nowadays for um teaching data skills primarily technical ones like learn sql in two weeks learn Mm -hmm. python in two weeks um that are great and teaching lots of people um, those kind of fundamental technical skills. But there's often quite a pressure for time 
for students to learn those skills and because you know businesses want to you know optimize their human capital and get people to work as quickly as they can I wanted to ask you if you think there's any tension between the way that those data skills are being kind of mass taught nowadays in that type of fashion versus kind of enabling people, people like me, to kind of have that creative time mm-hmm. to kind of access data Um which may lead to skills like data communication and, you know, that those kind of fundamental things of a business. So do you think there's a tension there? Uh, yeah, there is. And I'm not actually sure I have a, an easy answer to that. Um, you know, it, it's a lot easier to teach technical skills than it is to teach the uh, communication or empathy or, commu- or communicate. Yeah, the communication and empathy. Sto- I'm going to use the word storytelling, right? The, the, those kind of skills. Um in my in my experience those skills are developed i think i i think they have to be developed over a long time right now okay so your question was but how can a t a data leader build an environment where those skill the, the development of those skills are appreciated well i think from a leader's perspective it requires you know, building a culture where you can take time to say, okay, let's let's step back and look at something we've built, right? You know, how did this all make you feel, right? You know, how, how about doing that in a team? Can you imagine a team meeting where you all said, let's find a chart that we've our social media team have published or that we found about our industry. You, you know, how let's literally critique this chart. What did what what decisions have made been made in the the presentation or in the sort of the data story the, or the point it's trying to make, and you know what formatting decisions what how, how why did they choose the color why did they choose the axes why is that title worded like that which uh is it the most appropriate pre-attentive attribute right taking that time is really important um it's something we do uh in teams and tableau you know we'll, we'll we, we call it viz club right it's like we'll find a tableau public dashboard and we'll get together and we'll talk about it now you can't learn those skills in a week but over several months, you, you start being able to think, oh, I'm seeing that. And here's a, here's a trick or a deception I see quite often. Um, and so just encouraging, encouraging teams to think differently like that, I think is really important. Um, I, I Shameless plug here. I do a newsletter called The Sweet Spot. People can find that on LinkedIn or a, a URL, which I'm sure we can share. And the inspiration behind that is, uh, in order to be successful in your job, you need to know the tools you need to do your job, right? So you might be in sales or marketing or human resources. You need to know that as an analyst, you need to know how to use your data tools, possibly Tableau. But I think you also need this empathy about how data works and how it influences and where, just this kind of like, where, where can data come from? Uh, and the intersection of all three of those is called the sweet spot, right? So that's the name of my newsletter. And I just curate three really tangential articles or videos or podcasts about data every few weeks to try and just kickstart that thinking process. It's like, yeah, you can be a site. You can think about this as data science and I can do my job, 
but it's so much more than that. And, you know, that, that's my motivation is very much to try and kickstart people into sort of rethinking about those tensions and be like, oh, yeah, you know what? There's many more influences on how we see and understand data than just which tool we used. You talked about um, empathy. What do you think is the role of um, emotion in understanding a data visualization specifically? Uh, the role of emotion in understanding a data visualization. Uh, I think it's almost it's almost easier to think about the role of emotion in crafting the data visualization. So maybe I'll just answer that question instead. Um, there's very famous work by Kahneman and Tversky from 1981. They called it fra- framing, um, and it's about the, the way. Well, in their in their studies, they showed uh, study participants uh, two paragraphs of information, uh, and the, each paragraph said, "Should we should we do this thing or not do this thing?" And people were shown two versions of the, these paragraphs. One was deliberately framed towards saying, "Well, of the two things, of of whether we should do this thing, yes, we should definitely do it." And another one was worded, "Oh no, we should definitely not do do it." Now, the actual number, logically, they were both exactly the same, but the way they were framed, the way they were worded, uh, was um, would lead you emotionally down one path or another. Guess what? You can do that in visualizations too. I can color things red. Right, that I and make the the red things look make the bad things look really big in my visualization to make me go, oh my god, that's really really scary. Or I could, you know, much use much more neutral colors and choose to highlight something else or change an aggregation. You know, use an average instead of a sum. Uh, both of which will make change the 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 the, the way the charts look. Uh, if you think uh, there were some really famous charts during the pandemic. Uh, the New York Times did this, and I think the Washington Post as well, when the unemployment figures in the US came out in like April, May 2020. They'd shot so high that they the charts were positioned so that the bar chart sort of broke out of its little box on the page right to the very top of the news. So it went through the text, through the masthead of New York Times, up to the top of the page because it was so big. That kind of thing is emotional, uh, or is manipulating the kind of the pre-attentive attributes to make a punch in your brain uh, to bring about an emotional response. So I think a lot of emotion in visualization is uh, in the, is it's, it's in the power of the chart designer to uh, turn that dial up or down as they see fit and as is appropriate. Uh, and I've been really interested recently in, to, in, in starting to trying to work out you know, if you take all the examples of where this emotion in chart is kind of dialed up, is it when 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 is that accept? What what's the spectrum of that being acceptable, and when when does it become deceptive? I don't have an answer mm. to that question yet, and that's something I'm ex- looking forward to uh, exploring a bit more. Uh, so I think in terms of the consumer, I think you're slightly at the mercy of the chart designer um, mm. and. You know, in a world of misinformation and in a world awash with charts and data, it's incumbent on us as consumers to understand how designers can turn that dial up or down 
and to be wary of when it might be dialed up to our detriment. Yeah. And when you're talking about uh, ones that can be deceptive, do you have any any in mind that are make uh, triggering that thought process in you? Uh, well, there's, there's been, there was a very famous, well, very famous, there was an example used in the US, uh, a dual axis chart comparing abortion rates to cancer funding and the way the axes were truncated really showed a, implied a causal relationship that just did not exist. You know, when you, mm. when you did things more honestly, it was not there. Um, the, Another example, I, I think during the in the UK, the government press conferences with uh, Witty in his slides. Next slide, please. <laughs> it it was a, it was amazing watching those press conferences over two over the two years or eighteen months, and how the people in the cabinet office had a really really difficult job to keep the emotion out of those slides. You know, because any time those charts were deemed to be a bit more emotional, the press jumped on them. And we're like, you know, you're using your charts to de- deceive us. And it's like, well, to one extent, maybe they were trying to actually not deceive you, but it's like, we're going to push, the, we're going to turn the emotion up here to make you make people make appropriate decisions. But generally, they had to work extremely hard. And I think they succeeded in being like, we are stripping all the emotion out of this to just go, here's the facts. And, we're, and here's the facts. We're not, we're just telling you what's happening. We're not trying to put an emotion on it. Mm. nice nice so to finish up then is there is there anything that tableau is doing at the moment that you're kind of particularly excited about where where is tableau going do you think and yeah well where's tableau going well that's a very big question obviously we got acquired by salesforce (laughs) uh so we've got we're going to places where salesforce customers are going as well We've got, I mean, we've we've got a lot of great stuff coming up for the analysts. Uh, that's, I mean, my heart is in, is is where the analyst future is, um, and I'm looking forward to seeing some of those features. You can go and see some of the things we launched if you watch Tableau Conference keynote video. That was a few weeks ago in Las Vegas. Um, some of which I can't tell you about, which is really, which, oh. is, which is a real shame. Yeah, I, I mean, I'm thinking of, there's a couple of things, but I'm afraid I can't tell you about those. Uh, okay. We're what's interesting is we're we're with things like ask data and explain data. We are trying to bring analytics to an audience which is not is never going to learn the joys of drag and drop in Tableau. Right? You know, Tableau is amazing because you don't need code; you just drag and drop your fields around on the canvas and everything appears visually straight away. Turns out many, many people just aren't, don't have the time or inclination to learn that, but they can type a Google search term into Google. Can we bring that into data analysis? And the next generations of Ask Data in particular, I think are really exciting because we're beginning to sort of, instead of the familiar, instead of the interface that is, most Tableau users are used to, which with your columns and your rows and your mark shelf, um, the sentence itself becomes kind of the mark shelf and you can change each uh, each anatomical part of the sentence to change the mm. aggregation. I, I think I think the potential there is really exciting. Mm. Uh, it requires data sets to be curated in a slightly different way. And I don't think, I think there's still some work to do on how best to do that. Interesting. 
Well, Andy, it's been an absolute pleasure to have you on the Data Stories podcast. Thank you so much for joining me. I've learned so much from you today and I'm going to take so much away from this conversation. I hope you enjoyed your time on the podcast. I did indeed. Thank you, Isabel, and good luck with the podcast. Uh, If people want to find me, I'm A. Cotgreave on Twitter and uh, my blog where you can find links to things is gravyanecdote.com. It's gravyanecdote.com and bonus points to anybody who can work out why it's called Gravy Anecdote. (laughs) And I'll link those um, in the description. Thank you, Andy. Take care. Thank you for listening to this episode of Data Stories. If you enjoyed it, please give it a like, subscribe to the channel and share it around with people who you think might like it too.